Welcome to You Are Here, the podcast where we have conversations with people who have courageously taken the road less traveled. I'm your host, Rachel Ree, and in each episode, we'll be exploring stories from people who have followed their own path and are living life on their own terms. Know that we're here to meet you where you are and where you'd like to be. This is You Are Here. Today's guest is someone who I've actually interviewed in the past during the pandemic when he first ran for Congress. David Kim is running again in the 34th District in Los Angeles. And while, yes, he is running as a Democrat and we do talk a lot about social and political issues, the way in which we talk about it, in my opinion, is not necessarily along political party lines. And we actually go into that a bit because it's more so about meeting people where they're at. This really, though, isn't meant to be a platform for politics, but more so a platform for stories and exploring the paths that people take that have gotten them to where they are now. So with that, we'll just get right into it. Hi, David. As I was thinking about who I wanted to have on here, you were actually one of the people that was at the top of my list because I feel like you're someone who lives authentically and lives true to your voice. And I think that's really apparent with what you do for work during your day job, if you will, and also your run for Congress in the 34th District here in Los Angeles. And I know we'll dive more into that today. Hi, Rachel. I'm so glad to be here, too. I appreciate you making that very, very kind, generous observation. I think for me, I'm still learning day by day what that means to live my truth and to be myself and to to dig deeper, not in a desperate way, but in a kind of more natural way of connecting. And I think that's something that I've realized I've forgotten throughout the years, kind of trying to be an adult, trying to make a living, trying to do all of that. And in the midst of that, I felt like I, yeah, kind of left the, uh, the, the deeper connection to self. So yes, in recent years, I have made the pivots and switches. So I, I enjoy what I do during the day um, as a children's court attorney, defending parents uh, from getting their children removed, and then also uh, for running for con for for office for Congress. Um, I, I did try it a couple times, two times before we didn't win, but we did really well um, with the grassroots campaign. Um, no consultants, nothing. Uh, Forty-seven and forty-nine, and so we're running again this time because things are still the same. Status quo hasn't changed itself. Although we have politicians doing photo ops at the picket lines and strike protests, um, they're still being funded by people on the other side of the table. So it's just all empty smokes and mirrors and, and empty um, just charades. And so we really need people running that, um, that have ties just directly to the community. And, and that's what I do. I work with parents, vulnerable parents of Los Angeles County, and it's about time that their voices be heard. And so, yeah, we're running again. I think that's really interesting. So in your, I guess, day job, we can call it, you know, you're someone who is speaking up for people who might not necessarily have a voice and you're really being an advocate for them. And then also you running for Congress, being an advocate for the constituents and for the people of this district of it's Koreatown, downtown, Boyle Heights, kind of a, a large area of Los Angeles, can we maybe take a step back as both of these are such empowering kind of positions that you've put yourself in? Coming from your background, is there a specific experience growing up or a set of experiences growing up where you think that it really shaped you or helped you find your voice of being this person that's such an advocate for other people? Uh, I've been an attorney for 13 years, and I've done different practice areas, whether it be labor and employment, music, um, immigration, and now I'm doing children's court um, uh, and a very particular specialized area of family law, because it's not just family law, it's dependency law. Um, and this is happening in every county where you have child protective services, removing children from parents who they feel um, aren't fit to be parents is, is from their views. But in actuality, it's not because they're not fit to be parents. They don't have the resources. They've been shut out from the system. They're really people that the government has not been able to reach at all. And um, it's these vulnerable parents that are, are just kind of left to be. And so the connection to that, I, I mean, after practicing 
doing the different things because I love music. My mom was a piano teacher. I taught piano. And I think that's where that personal connection part of me came out. And I practiced music law for a bit. Um, it was it was really most of it was helping just working class creatives struggling um, to make ends meet with two to three jobs and then trying to make it in, in the industry here. But um, it's all to say, I think all of us, um, not just myself, we have our own personal experiences and backgrounds that have steered us or pivoted us or, or led us to go certain ways after certain interests, after certain professions. And it's unique to each of us because not all of us have the same experiences as each other. Yes, we might be similar, but we have very different experiences, um, all those similar backgrounds, kind of different perspectives of that. And I think it's up to us for each of us to bring that out into the world. And so whatever dreams, thoughts, desires you have and you're listening to this, like that's yours to own and that's yours to birth out into the world. And so I think just for myself, um, going back to your question, um, I grew up um, pastor's kid, immigrant family, second generation, Korean parents didn't know English. Um, so we became their mouthpiece and voice growing up, um, negotiating their phone, electricity bill, um, talking on their behalf always, talking on their behalf during parent-teacher conferences as well, um, doing all of that. And then also extending that to um, my dad, since he was a pastor, to our church members, and then calling, negotiating their phone bills and <laughs> doing all of that. So I, I, I naturally assumed this attorney representative role since a very young age. And I think to go even a layer deeper, my family wasn't perfect. And I, I love my dad um, now and I love my mom, obviously. And, and they haven't accepted kind of a part of who I am, um, which is uh, my being queer. And I had come out to them about five years ago and they, they're still processing that and that's fine. But even before going to that, I think growing up, my dad wasn't perfect. Um, behind closed doors, a lot of our church members um, weren't aware of that. Hey, the pastor's like beating his kids. And, and that's what happened. I mean, once or twice a year and my brother and I would go to the ER and, and it's, it's just, and I remember there were those couple opportunities where law enforcement came over or, and, and my mom had the opportunity to say, Hey, yes, my husband hit me or my husband hit the kids. But she didn't because she didn't want us taken away by Child Protective Services. And in a way, back then, I didn't understand my mom. I, I thought she was just literally the, the not smartest person in the world for lying like that um, when her kids are being hurt. And um, I just never understood her. But looking back, I am actually thankful to my mom in the aspect of not because she continued to let that happen, but the fact that she didn't want us to be taken away by CPS. And just to imagine me living in a foster home and all of that, just it just made me very more kind of appreciative of my mom and dad and, and realizing, hey, there are perspectives that they don't have. And uh, that's something that I um, really do take to heart. And so when I defend these parents, they come into children's court. Um, there's that personal connection. And um, we have parents coming in for all different types of issues, whether it be substance use, whether it be straight up poverty, not being able to pay their rent. So their landlord calls them and reports them to CPS or, or whether it be domestic violence or physical abuse or conditions that the children aren't supposed to be in. But that's because the parents really don't have resources. And so um, defending these parents have, have um, yeah, it's just a very direct connection to what I've experienced growing up. But then also seeing how a lot of these parents are parents, not just here in LA, but all over the country and how that is, this is happening all over the country where we have a big fraction of our community not being served or by the government or not, not having access to services. And so I think for me, that's where that personal connection ties in. And, and then also kind of serving my dad's church members growing up and, and how I, I really don't think um, and this is the pastor's kid coming in when, when Jesus says in the Bible, go feed the hungry, take care of the sick, clothe the poor. Like, I don't feel like that's just a church thing. I think that's a human being thing. And, and how that's just something for all of us to be naturally inclined and in need to do, because I think all of us are at our core 
at our inner core is this uh, connection to love or whatever that may look or feel like to each person. And with that, I think the natural calling is to help each other out. And because when we help each other out, we, we are really helping ourselves. And I know that during the times when I was sort of on the verge of coming out of the closet, then coming out, having that whole chapter of my life with my parents where we didn't talk, there were times where I just couldn't process my feelings. I felt, I felt numb, depressed. And, and what I noticed, what got me out of those moments was helping others, um, looking out for others, listening to others, um, because I think there is, there's this unexplainable connection that we all have with each other. And, and really, when we help others, we really do help ourselves and, and we start to ignite and, and make things alive in ourselves too. And so I think that's that's where it just the natural step in terms of I can help these families one by one, Rachel, mm -hmm. um, in children's court. And but then oh, it's just it's just this like, oh, but we could be doing so much more if we change things like the Adoption Safe Families Act, which was passed in the 90s, uh, which really poor black and brown families across the U.S. and putting their children into foster care um, passed as a good intention law. Um, but just through, you can see that it actually did the exact opposite. And so with that, with, with all of these other things, we could be doing so much more. And so I think the logical next step is, is running for office. And since we got so close, Rachel, last year, 49%, this is like the one last time, one last shot. We're going to do it one more time. So that's why we're running. Well, and 49%, first of all, running in general is such a huge accomplishment that in itself, not everyone has the, I'll just say gumption to be able to do that. So that is the award right there, you know, but to even get so close as 49% as someone who's pretty brand new to the political scene, that's really impressive. And one thing though, that you mentioned, you know, thanks for being so vulnerable in opening up about your background. What I find to be really interesting is that, you know, in the in the small sort of recount of, you know, your childhood and having law enforcement come to your home and your mom not advocating for you, you've found yourself even still being an advocate for other people, even though you kind of grew up in this environment where the natural default is to be quiet and to stay small for whatever reasons there might be. Yeah, I think... It's in the beginning when I started doing it's it's interesting because kind of going into law school, going into and, and doing my studies and then starting in my career, I, I had this like bucket list item of like, oh, I want to work for because I mean, my mom was a piano teacher. I love music. I love K-pop. And it was just like, oh, I want to work for a, a major studio doing music and, and stuff like that. And so I did that. I worked in-house. Um, I I after working for a lot of years for working class creatives, working two to three jobs, trying to make it, I, I finally landed an in-house music legal job at Sony. And then, but after kind of climbing up to that, it was like, huh, okay, I've gotten here. And it was just this, like, I remember looking out of my window at the studio a lot, Rachel, I was like, huh, this is great. But like, what's next? Like, this is not why fought so hard to like come here and to be stuck in the studios <laughs> looking at papers i don't know how fulfilling this is to me and i would look forward to breaks to go walk to the coffee shop on the studio lot or outside of it and it was just like just this moment of hey this is not what i was born to do i don't think i was born to do this um i mean this is great now i can check it off of my bucket list and so i resigned and my boss at the time, she was VP and she looked at me, she's like, why are you resigning? This is so random. And then I, right after that, I did immigration litigation. So defending undocumented um, individuals and families in court when they got their deportation removal orders. And that was great. I mean, I had to learn it from scratch. Uh, but then given that I have been working as an attorney, it's, it didn't take me too long. And, and so I got into that. And I don't know, I, there was also this just kind of thing of, oh, I, I want to help families even more directly. And I don't know what it was. And then somebody came along and she said she's she's a retired attorney now. And um, she had practiced independency for like 30 plus years. 
she's like, hey, David, I really feel like you should try dependency law, which is children's court. When she explained everything and then she explained that she used to be a parent's defense attorney, I was like, how in the world could I defend parents like my parents? Hell no. And that's what I thought initially. But then I just thought, no, my parents aren't bad people. They just needed support system and resources. And I don't think that they would have kind of fought that much or my dad wouldn't have kind of let that all, all out on us and, and, and whatnot if the conditions were better. Because at the end of the day, like I think my brother would agree, my parents really fought about money and how hard it was to live. And at the end of the day, and so thinking of that, I was able to get the reactive kind of sentiments and, and mindset that I had and go deeper and, and realize, oh, my parents, like, obviously, if they knew what they were doing, they wouldn't be doing it. And they're not bad people. And so kind of coming from that perspective, when I started doing the work, I still had this hesitation. But then after doing the work and meeting my clients and talking to the heart to heart, I was like, yo, these parents are really good people. They just need support systems right now. And and um, and so I think right now I'm 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 definitely uh, a hardcore advocate for my parent clients in court. And um, and I think one of the beautiful things, Rachel, is I think any good attorney can do as good of a legal attorney job as as I can or or me as as them. But I think for me, what's very helpful given the background and perspective that I have growing up in the way that I did, um, seeing the domestic violence, experiencing the physical abuse, I'm able to also come from that lens and talk to these parent clients and where it's like, hey, the judge ordered you to do this. I need you to do this. Like if you really mm-hmm. care about your child and you need to do these classes and services and and just checking in on the parents, I think that overall and, and showing that, that there is another human being, not putting aside the attorney hat and the attorney figure, but as me as a human being, encouraging them um, to, to power that, that isn't in, in deep inside them, but that they can't reach for it or see it because conditions around them are so tough. And so I think being that motivator encourager also is something that's just so powerful for me as I hope. Yeah. And that's really insightful because I think it's Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right? Where the bottom foundation kind of of who we are as humans, we need to take care of our basic needs of, you know, financial security. Do we have rent for the next month? Do we have food on the table for this next meal? And if you can't achieve those things, it's really hard to kind of advance yourself as a human being because you're operating in this constant state of stress and insecurity. And, and that's the thing. Um, that's the thing for the past. I mean, for our parents, for the for for those whose parents did immigrate to the States uh, for that generation and sector. I mean, yeah, they busted their butts just working day in and day out, six days, seven days a week. And they, too, toiled and 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 really put in their sweat and blood and, and raising us and, and trying to make ends meet and, and to save. But right now, the conditions are even worse. You have people working two to three jobs constantly and still living month to month. Um, and on top of that, you, we already have this childhood trauma that all of us are living in, um, this fright, flight or freeze mode, this um, sympathetic mode state where we're just always reactive and we haven't even healed of it ourselves because we haven't been given the space and time to do that and to even notice that we have that. Um, and without even noticing that we're still waking up in that and operating in that day in and day out um, and being reactive with ourselves, with each other, um, with the decisions that we make. And so I think one of the things that I remember saying on the campaign trail last time is one of the things to keep people under control is through poverty. And you just and, and that's how you control people, because we're too busy. Nobody has for for the person for the average constituent in our district, the top twenty fourth district of the four hundred thirty five, it will 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 know the harsh consequences and heat and and whatnot of of the sun and of climate change in the district, but they won't ever have the space and time or attention or energy to even right. think about that because they're trying to feed their children and they're trying to pay rent, and so. If we're not able to really meet the basic needs of our people, then what are we doing as a government? What are we doing as representatives, um, as elected officials? And I think right now 
how I see it is every elected official, elected, reelected, they're just barely keeping the government running. And that's the minimum that they're doing. They're just so imagine like this big car, like we bought in like 1980, 19 and, and it's this nice car. And then it slowly gets worn down over the years, but we're not fixing right. it at all. And the, the bumper's falling off, the mirror's falling off, dents are in it. And like, we're just keeping it running. That's all. There's been no big recognition or, or moment to stop and realize, hey, these are the things we need to fix of the past right now because they, we have these dents in the car. We have this engine rattling. We have the bumper that's, we need to address this. They're, that's not any. And then the future of, hey, what are we going to do about this car? Shouldn't we save money to buy another car? Because we can't keep on fixing this car. And what, where are we going with this destination? Can this car handle wherever we're going? Do we even know where we're going? And there's no talk about the future right now as well. So we have these elected officials being reelected just to keep that car barely right. running without fixing the defects and structural defects that need to be fixed and without thinking about how to plan for the next I'm, I'm, It's just insanity, Rachel, that we have elected officials being reelected and not realizing what they're doing right now. They're just keeping everything barely running without fixing this deteriorating car and without talking about the future of what to do about getting a new car and and or or where we're going and so hey so it's just very frustrating in that aspect and um and i think for me and i think the the other connection is i mean as somebody who's agnostic and uh, and identifies with with being christian and having that background and and being spiritual like whether you be religious or a-religious, I think we all sort of have this understanding of, hey, if you put your mind to it, you'll see results happen. They might not be immediate results, but they, they'll be at least positive results that not right. doing anything and not putting in the work. But then that's sort of like a general unspoken golden rule that we all are aware of in a way. But then now we're living in reality in a matrix in a world where conditions are so tough that even if you put your mind to it, the results aren't happening because the world we live in is not allowing for us to be able to thrive like that. And so as somebody who and, 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 uh, and knows about the secret and all of that, but then it doesn't fit because we're not living in a world that allows that because we have the rich, the wealthy, the few, the special interests controlling all of that. And every now and then giving us an illusion that it is achievable by giving us breadcrumbs here and there. So, so a, an example of that, Rachel, just to pull us back down to reality is we have politicians like the current congressman Brian running saying, hey, paid leave. Yes, dads need leave too. Yes, paid family leave. That's great. That's amazing. I am for that any day of the week, any second of the day. But that's not what we should be talking about. We should be talking about why do you have two to three jobs right, right. now? Forget about having two to five or five more weeks of days or, or, or of paid leave or whatnot. What about only being labeled and allowed to work one job so that that can feed your family and you? Like, why are we talking about that? Our conversation is so misplaced right now. And yet we're like applauding these politicians and saying, yeah, you go fight for us. But it's like, no, it's because we haven't tasted what real fighting elected officials and politicians are like, that we've become complacent with the status quo ourselves. So then when we do see people kind of saying things that are out of the box, it's like, oh, that person's a little too courageous there. Like, maybe I'll just chalk that person off. And, and it's kind of become that type of mindset and and i think it's about time for us to break free from that mindset and to break free from um yeah i i i completely forgot even what the no i mean <laughs> no this was really great i can see that you're so passionate and it does take a lot of courage to go against the grain and to speak so openly and say the system is broken the people that are in office now you know for whatever reasons like aren't seeing the bigger picture aren't necessarily feeling what the people on the ground are feeling on a day-to-day -day basis it's hard though because it sounds great and we see the passion but you know it can 
complacency, I think, is a good word because it's just how do we get there? How do we get to a place where one job is enough and that's enough to feed your family and you then have you know, a livelihood to be able to actually have this quote unquote work-life balance that everyone always tries to achieve and spend time with your family and live this idealistic life. How do we actually get there as society? Because this it's such a systemic thing that it's just, it feels so big. It just feels hopeless. So then people become apathetic to it. Yeah. Um, with that, Rachel, that's a great question. And I think we can we can go about that at different angles um, with that question, whether it be with policies, life empowering policies, which is one of our core values, or whether it be with different strategic ways of implementing this first or focusing on this area first or working with these different levels of government first. And there's different ways to answer that question. But as you were asking that question, I think what really stuck to me is we need to awake, we need to awake the American dead. We need to awake the sleeping giant right now, which is the American people. We need to wake us up right now. We need to shake us up. We need to like ignite that fire in each of us. Because once we do that, holy shit, like these elected officials cannot be continued to be reelected. Like that's when the people will rise up and say, no, like now's the time to take action. But how do we go about doing that? And that's why when when sometimes, depending on the constituents, because I need to read the room, um, but for certain constituents, I say we need a moral revolution, to be honest, in this country. And that really is, is about being human being. But how do we get to that when all of us are struggling right. so hard, when we're working to make ends meet, when we're living month to month? And so that's why I think in addition to life empowering policies like universal basic income and whatnot, I think even to get more granular, what is something that could help us internally to reach that moment of that aha moment of waking up, waking that that sleeping giant, the American people for each of us is, I really want us to fight for a monthly mental health voucher, which will which will give us the tools and resources at least to start in caring for ourselves emotionally and mentally. And they call that behavioral health because once we're able to do that, that's when we're able to really connect with the deep power, that unexplainable power and core of who we are, uh, whether that be love, power, peace, whatever you call it. Um, because right now we're just living in this reactive, sympathetic, fight, flight, or freeze mode state where we're living and operating in our trauma. And so that keeps us in our complacency because when neurons fire together, they wire together. And so we need to break those neural pathways and rewire those neural pathways. But then people don't have the space, the time and the finances to be able to do that. And so even for myself, I have thankfully health insurance through my employer. But even with my health insurance, I had to jump through hoops and hurdles, fill out retake tests online and do the phone call exams just to make just to qualify for my insurance to coverage for a therapist because I wanted to go see a therapist. So and and so I had to explain to my coworkers on how to jump through the hoops and hurdles to get your insurance to cover your therapist. But then that's just us. But there's a lot of people who I even have health insurance. They don't have access to behavioral health care whatsoever. And then for those who don't have health insurance, how are you going to pay $150 a session for a therapist? And I'm not, and therapists also need to make a living and be paid because they do their work well, the, the really good ones. And so, but, but the average person, when you're living month to month, how are you supposed to budget that in at all? And so I, right now, I think it's time where because we have 99% of our politicians being funded by Big Pharma, I don't think it's realistic for us to to really think that guaranteed healthcare will pass for us in the next couple of years, to be honest, to be straightforward. Of course, we're going to fight for that and we're going to reach that critical mass soon um, as we slowly turn each seat to people-funded politician seats and not corporate-funded politician seats. But until we get to that, we need to think outside the box. And so how powerful would it be if we had a monthly mental health voucher or you could call it a mental health UBI where... Every American could choose what to do with that voucher, whether it be to 
a yoga teacher, a mindfulness teacher, a therapist, a life coach, a physical gym, um, uh, exercise program, whatever it might be to help you with your behavioral health. And the process could be very streamlined, not uh, too complicated, but still um, an effective and, and worthy vetting method for being accredited. But what would that be like? People would be able to feel and be able to connect with their true selves. And I think that's the first step that we need to go on, Rachel. And so in my first hundred days, when we do get elected, that's something that I would really love to push for. And I'm, I feel like I'm that person that can come at it and reach across the angle. I, I could get that support. And on the Republican side, um, given the Christian background, given what I know are the values of, of the Republican side as well, since my dad and mom, I grew up Republican. I think that's something that's bipartisan and what we can start to work on. This is all just sort of a humanity issue. But really what we're talking about here is like, how do we help all people be well and start caring for themselves? Because ultimately it's all sort of a cycle. You know, everything is connected. If we start caring for ourselves physically, emotionally, mentally, that also kind of helps catapult so the way we think and like you were saying kind of rewire some of those neural pathways so you know you were mentioning how does anyone have the space time and energy but it's also like who has the resources to do this so that's interesting this sort of voucher type of mechanism because i'm assuming you know if you don't use it then you would lose it yeah and we can um and as you were saying that that's where we can um, insert public banking and like do all of that great stuff um, but I think it's just through those out of the norm, it's it's getting out of these. One thing I noticed, Rachel, backing up is when I was knocking on doors last cycle, I noticed that everyone wants the same things, which is living a good life, having good health, being able to see family and friends mm -hmm. when they can, and being able to have things off where they can enjoy life. And But then once you use certain words, the jargon, like Medicare right. for all, or climate change. That's where suddenly, like, you can, I can even sense and see a sudden adjustment in eyes or look or energy. And it's like, oh, so we need to drop the labels and go a little deeper and just talk about what really matters. And, and I think um, that I think that's our next step. I mean, what we see in politics right now is a reality shit show of, of just, oh, you did this. And, and censuring and all of this but i think that really comes from because they're not really connecting with their constituents and talking with them and hearing out um, them on a daily basis they're they're really sticking to what their own personal and party and whatever interest agendas are um and so that's why we're, we're seeing a reality show and, and so we need just we just really need to take a step back what i'm noticing about you and kind of how you're running your campaign and really just your life in general is that you want to connect with people. You know, you're either talking to the parents and really just trying to understand what their story is, or as you just mentioned, you know, going door to door and having one-on-one -on -one conversations with your constituents. And I think that's where politicians or that's where people just in general can start to really have a better understanding of our fellow citizens and our fellow neighbors is being being down on the ground and being unafraid to have those conversations and to know that you know maybe to not come at a conversation from one angle by using those certain trigger words that everyone knows but really just looking at it like how can we all just be well as a society yeah how can we all be well as a society and one of my top three um and that's that's great. You pointed out one of my top three core values. I know that our campaign, our, our three core values are people's sense of politics, co-governance, life and parent policies. For me, it's presence, love, and mm -hmm. connection. So that currently in the season of my life. And I think the connection part really is multifaceted in so many ways, whether that be connecting with a feeling that I have, uh, an energy that I have, a thought that I have, and really not just avoiding it or resisting it or or being irritated for it and hoping it goes away, but taking that moment, taking that hard step. It's a hard step sometimes. And it's a difficult step, but just really taking that moment, that breath and saying, hey, so what's going on? Why am I having this feeling? Why am I having this thought? Why am I feeling this way? And being able to connect because once you connect, you realize, oh, 
that's what was under that. Oh, okay. And and just even connecting with ourselves is very powerful. But then if we're unable to do that, I think that the first step is really, really connecting with each other because when we do that, we realize, oh my gosh, like why was I so scared that this person would judge me or I would be judged or 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 why did I think this of this person or these this group or and we'll realize that wow, a lot of the things that we feel are hindrances or obstacles between us or between things are really not. It's just because of certain conditioning, certain lenses that we need to pro- probably just clean and, and wipe a little bit um, and realize that, wow, connecting really does show and clear up a lot of things, uh, whether they be known or unknown. And I think connecting is is what helps bring the truth, the light and like um, being a when um, when it says like be the solid or be the light, I think I think it really is also talking I think it it's it's more touching on the connecting part of it. And uh, now I'm like being my like my dad a <laughs> pastor. But the connecting part the connecting part of it where like when you shine light in a dark room, like it connects like it, it illuminates things or like or or when you sprinkle salt, it connects you with the taste of the food or or whatever it is. And I think that connecting part Whatever it is, it's indescribable. So connecting with yourself, even at the end of the day, during a moment, during or connecting with somebody else, even if it's just saying, hey, how are you? I hope you're okay." And people understand we're really busy, um, but that's a connection right there or smiling at someone. And and I think you'll notice that um, there is something there that we can't explain. Um, But in in that connection is life. And I think we need more of that life. Um, and all of us and, and, and all of our conversations and, and, and dialogue. Yeah. I, it's funny that you say that connection is one of your values. It's one of my personal values, which is why, you know, I wanted to even start a podcast and start connecting with people on thoughts and opinions and, and perspectives and share these stories. Because I think also under a connection is that once we start connecting with other people and having really meaningful, thoughtful conversations, you can see that a lot of people have the same fears, have the you know same worries in life, and also have the same aspirations, like you were mentioning, of you know wanting to be happy, wanting to be healthy, wanting to have the space to you know, spend time with loved ones. And I think how we operate as a society, so many people are left unseen or feel invisible or just feel alone because they sort of lack that connection piece of it yeah no i i totally agree i totally agree and and that's why i think like one of the things for um once we get elected i want to have these awesome constituent drop-in hours where constituents can drop at any time um where you don't have to wait like once every quarter for um and try to find out where your your elected officials having a meeting um but but really i think that's what's key and um that's why we want to create a constituent caucus where um, in every neighborhood of the district. So we go as north as Eagle Rock, east as East LA, Boyle Heights, um, south as the 10, in downtown mm-hmm. Echo 7th Street, um, and then west as um, west of Koreatown. Um, and just creating a constituent caucus where every neighborhood's connected, where constituents are relaying their concerns, their stories to us, and then hearing each other out too. And then also having an activist caucus because we have activists doing the work in so many different areas, whether it be housing, um, uh, immigration, um, uh, criminal justice, and every in every different area, um, and and really creating a caucus for them because they've been doing the work. I know that you're, you know, talking about connection kind of more at a broader scale with you know all of our neighbors and our community, but you did mention that you are also into mindfulness and um, I practice yoga and all of these things. So just on a personal level, how do you think that? Um, all of us, you know, as we go about our day can really start to connect with ourselves because I can see throughout your life as well, you know, you, you connecting with your sexuality and being able to have those conversations with your family, you connecting with your higher purpose and quitting that cushy corporate job and really following your passion. So how would you suggest people can start to go about and connect with themselves in whatever way that might mean? So, I mean, off the bat then, since you asked for it, here's here's a very practical one. So the next time you feel like you're experiencing a negative feeling 
And if you're like, what is that? What does that mean, David? And I'm like, no, you know what that means, a negative feeling. Um, so a, a clear example is, is ask, your, ask yourself five to 10 questions of why. Why am I feeling this way? And even though it's hard and even though I feel like talking, like, like when you wake up in the morning like, and, and you don't want to talk to your family members, so you're just silent, like you, you'll feel that with yourself too. And, and even if you ask yourself that question, why, nothing might come up, but force yourself to answer that why and then go to the second why, then go to the third why, then go to the fourth and fifth, because then you'll start to uncover what's really there. Um, and an example for that, yesterday I went to a, a community event um, where I was invited and I can already tell if there's a, an older Korean community leader that doesn't like me because of my sexuality. I can already sense it. Um, they don't really do eye, eye contact. They usually are super smiley to the, to the people next to me um, when they say hi. And then when they say hi to me, they sort of dart their eyes. And so I, and, and so while I was driving home last night, um, I just thought, man, what, why am I feeling this? Why am I like, I just went to a community event. I saw people, I met, connected with people, but why do I feel so irritated? And, and I asked myself why, and then I just thought, huh, um, while I was talking with people earlier tonight, I might have been rubbed the wrong way. Why? It's like, huh, when was I rubbed the wrong way? And I, I just thought, no, those connections were good. There was no bad conversation. Was it the way somebody looked at me? And then I thought, oh, okay, why? Why did that person? And so I went to the root cause of, oh, I'm irritated because I feel like I'm unloved, that that I'm not worthy because I'm gay, that I'm un that I'm not lovable because I'm gay, that I'm not worthy to be seen in the eye, to be shaken by the hand because I'm gay. And it was those thoughts that were causing me sadness and irritation. And so I had I sat with those thoughts and I and I closed my eyes and I said, Hey David, is that the truth though? And and I and I answered for myself, no, that's not the truth. And um we we it, it's powerful for us to realize that these subconscious thoughts or assumptions or beliefs are things that we can uncover and can rewire for ourselves. So that's one example, of one way to connect, Rachel. Um, an easier one is I think when we wake up, we immediately go for our phones or for our laptop or or um, right before we go to sleep, we look at TV or phones. But just take a moment, whether you prefer it in the evening or both. Um, just to sit there, whether it be downloading Calm or Headspace or you, or YouTube and searching for a one to three minute breathing exercise. Um, and that allows you to create some space. And then just notice yourself, observe before and after because, and, and you'll feel great. Sometimes you might not feel anything. It might feel the same because you're at that, um, that status quo level change. But after doing that for 18 months, you'll definitely see difference. You'll see um, an ability for not just higher tolerance because that's not the purpose of doing it, but uh, a deeper depth and understanding of why you're doing the things you're doing, why you're thinking the way you think and, and why certain interactions are occurring because they are. And so it'll also kind of give you a, a deeper insight and understanding of, of who you are and, and, and where, where you are um, in terms of your um, process of life. And so that's just another way of, um, of connecting and, um, journaling is the last one, uh, Rachel, as a general tip I would share is journaling. Um, when you wake up in the morning, a good practice is where we've just, we've just woken up into this reality matrix. There's a lot of thoughts that are still lingering from the day before, from a few days before. Just write it all out. Get it all, all out on paper um, because once you do get it all out on paper, your mind is more clear. I love those. And they're very practical to kind of go back to that first example, though, of the why it is something that can be very scary because it's kind of forcing yourself to really look underneath your own kind of top surface level of how you operate throughout the day. And a lot of times, you know, if it is anger, or irritation that someone's feeling, that's more of like the secondary tertiary kind of feeling or emotion that you're feeling really the, the root of it is sadness. And a lot of people, you know, to take it back to kind of your constituents and your community, like there's a lot of anger that's out there. There's a lot of just frustration that people are feeling, you know, why am I working all these different jobs? Why am I hustling day and night and I'm not able to 
make ends meet. And really at the end of the day, on a human level, it's just sadness of not being seen, not feeling cared for, knowing that you're working so hard and yet it's not enough somehow. I read some statistic for LA County and you might, you'll definitely know better than myself, but I think I read somewhere that it was, you know, 70 or $80,000 is considered low income or it's something around that. And I just remember a time when that was enough to actually thrive, not just survive. And we're at a point now because of, you know, so many different factors that that's not enough. And that's not enough to actually support Mm -hmm. a full family with that. I guess then to kind of dive into your platform a little bit more, you kind of talked about, you know, some of the foundation and the platform that you're running on. But if you want to maybe just dive into sort of your tenants and your pillars on how we can actually help the community that we live in. Um, So what is the platform that you're running on to really help the community thrive? Yeah, right before getting to that, Rachel, you had commented 70, 80,000 being low income. I, um, while you were saying that, I quickly calculated because I remember my friend Gina, she ran for LA mayor um, last cycle, 2022. um, And she was, was, I remember being in a candidate forum and she quoted saying that research or studies show that a living wage here in Los Angeles, specific to Los Angeles, is $39 an hour. So when I calculated that, that came out to be around 80,000. And that's when we say living wage, that's like living wage to get by, right? And so, um, so anyhow, that seems to add up. But yeah, no, going to our, our campaign and, and it's not, and in terms of what we're running on, running on um, the same issues and values, but more organized, more centralized and focused, more digestible for constituents to be able to explain. And it really comes down to three core values that are shaped in um, uh, an upside down pyramid with the bottom layer being people-centered politics. And people-centered politics right now is we have politics that is completely controlled and influenced by corporate and special interests. Um, You have um, 90 over almost close to 100% of every politician's funding coming from corporate PACs. And then once they're reelected, these same corporations that get, get they get big tax breaks, subsidies, um, everything with that a corporate welfare bailout. And then this just continues at the top where the politicians and corporate interests are giving each other money. And then the people are stuck at the bottom giving scraps here and there just to be given the illusion that they're being fought for. So in order to change this paradigm, we need to really just demolish it and really have people-centered politics. And how do we have that then? So where we're having people funding politics, so that means we level up the playing fields because we have right now uh, not level playing fields where we have these incumbents and politicians being reelected because it's impossible for any challenger to challenge them because they don't have the money to challenge them. So how do we level the playing field? We can level the playing field with democracy dollars or vouchers. So where we give, I give you 100 U.S. democracy dollars, and you get to choose $10 you'll give to Katie Porter or $10 you'll give to Barbara Lee and $10 you'll give to your city council member candidate and $10 you'll give to whatever. So now everybody has an equal influence and we're diversifying the influence of uh, campaigns now um, across the board. And so where everybody has an invested interest and studies show that when you're able to pitch in and to have an invested stake, you'll also vote as well. And so that also increases democratic engagement as well, um, where you're not having a very small minority of a district determining who their official is now, but now you'll be having more people engaged in the process. Then there's ranked choice voting, which is more democratic. Then there's banning corporate PAC money. Um, There are bills and versions out there in Congress, but there just hasn't been a lot of support because we haven't reached that critical mass yet. Out of the 435 reps, I would say maybe we have about 10 that are completely people-funded, including uh, a representative Ilhan Omar and others. Um, but we need to reach that critical mass. So those are the different things that we can do to have people-centered politics. Because once we create that base, then we're able to go to the next base, which is the second core value, Rachel, which is co-governance, where it's a representative is supposed to be of, for, and by the people. And that means they should be doing what the people want. 
So that means they should be with them all the time listening to their stories. But we have a model right now where politicians in Washington are being told what their agenda is by their party leaders, by their special interests, by their corporate donors of what their that the agenda is. And then squeezing in what little that they can for the people and then coming back and saying, hey, I'm going to listen to you. Oh, OK, that's great. But hey, we got these crumbs for you. So this is great, right? OK, cool. That's the model that we have right now. But we need a model where we're flipping that, where it's representatives listening to stories and issues and suggested solutions that are brought on by constituents and activists and taking that to Washington and saying, hey, this is the agenda that my constituents want to make and not the agenda that you want for them. And, and that's called co-governing, co-governing with constituents, co-governing with activists. And that means we need to be intentional about that, not just by word alone. So earlier I had mentioned creating a constituent caucus. That's one way that we can keep that co-governance um, where we're meeting monthly on a regular basis, an activist caucus um, where we're doing that community listening sessions, um, constituent drop-in hours and office hours, um, publicized and, and publicly advanced um, monthly town hall meetings for the entire district and not just once a quarter um, to a select few. So those are the things that we can really expand that broader level of co-governance because once we're able to do that, then we're able to come to the third top layer, uh, Rachel, which is the, the really broad layer of the naturally life-empowering policies cannot, like the, the only natural consequences for them to happen. They cannot not happen. Because once you have that model in place where you have people-centered politics and then co-governance, all you have left is life-empowering policies to be produced. But right now, we have these career politicians saying, oh, I'll give you health care for all. Oh, I'll help you with that. But no, we've been strung along. Has that happened? No, it hasn't happened. So they're just empty campaign promises and lip services um, and dangling lists because it's not possible. And the reason why it's not possible is because the foundations need to be fixed. There's no co-governance. There's no people-centered politics. And so we just have this carrot dangling that continues for years and years. And so unless we change this paradigm and model, we're not going to ever get life-empowering policies. And the obvious reason being is when a politician says, hey, I'll fight for guaranteed health care for all, how can you when your donors are on the other side of the table and they don't want you to? That doesn't make sense. And so um, it's really kind of diving deeper, connecting deeper with, hey, what are the issues and, um, and candidates in, in the politics and the campaign or in the elections um, that, I'll, that I'll be voting for? And let's dig deeper in that. Let's connect with, with what their message is um, as opposed to what's been served for, to us for years. Yeah, I think that is really interesting, kind of the way that you're breaking down your platform. And it kind of goes back to what we were talking about before of, you know, how people aren't able to necessarily reach other levels of uh, fulfillment in their lives because they're so focused on sort of making the ends meet and just the foundational elements of how to survive. And so for you, with your platform, it seems like, yes, of course, these life empowering policies are very important and that's the goal, but we have to take a step back and see, you know, where is the support actually coming from? Is it corporate money? Is it actually grassroots money? And are the constituents a part of this process? Because that's one thing I'll say is that it can be very, it can feel like a black box, Washington and policies and how they're all made, because it doesn't feel like people necessarily have a say in uh, the way policies and such are being shaped currently. And and it's a very disruptive model, Rachel. It's very disruptive because once I get elected, Rachel, I do not have anybody to behold myself to accept my constituents and my supporters. I have no one else to, to really pledge. I mean, I pledge my allegiance to the country, of course. But besides that, I don't have to pledge my allegiance to any corporate special interests or party leaders in that sense. And so that's a very disruptive model that will shake so many things. And so as, as you were sharing that earlier, I just thought it's so disruptive that Congress member Jamie Raskin sent out a text blast to all 300,000 constituents in our district last cycle in October, one month before the election, and, and an email. And he said, if David Kim is elected, I will be a threat to American democracy. And I just thought, wow, this big name incumbent that I'm running against, he's, he, he felt so threatened. Now he got a high-ranking Congress member, Jamie Raskin, who has no idea who I am. 
and Barlas's name to send out that text class and to say that. And so it's just very interesting how how the the establishment is really trying to keep people that that aren't part of them out of them and they won't let them in. Yeah, that was interesting. Um, the statistic that you said that there's only currently 10 reps out of the 400 something. Anybody who's listening, don't quote me on that. I'm just ballparking because I haven't actually spent time to see, to trace every Congress member's thing. Right. But, but essentially, essentially a very small number. And that's really shocking. And I think it, you know, I think we hear, you know, we're not going to take corporate money, no PACs. And it kind of sounds very nebulous, I think, to like the average person. Like, but what does that actually mean? It means what you're exactly saying. You are not beholden to really anyone except for the constituents. When I see my Congress member and opponent go to certain strikes, it's like, what? You're, I understand that you're at the WGA SAG after strike, but go look at your money at funders. You took money from Warner Brothers, from Sony, from Amazon. Like, what are you doing right now? Like, and, and, and it's just, and it's these, these uh these politics of, of, of performative politics that that is really destroying our country because it it, it gives us this mm-hmm. illusion that they're fighting for us but they're not they're doing it and so um and so with that i mean for them it, it's really if, if they if they don't abide by party politics and, and and special interests and and the whole game of calling their corporate funders and all of that then they won't get reelected and they won't have a career um, so it's really about their career. It's not really about fighting for the people. It's really about keeping their career in place because they won't have a job after. Um, and then number two, it's really like when you have this action of politicians getting funded by corporate interests, and then once they get elected, then giving the money from the federal government back out to these corporate interests in a, in a bailout type of thing, a corporate welfare bailout and in, in dividends, tax breaks, and all of this, then, then you're really tying up the money and the budget and the resources from the people. So it's actually hurting us. And so I think that's the, that's the, that's the message thing that we need to, um, that we get to communicate this campaign season. And, and hopefully we're able to do that successfully. Um, where can people, as they start hearing about the election more and seeing more campaign ads and whatnot, where can people get a better sense of how politicians or candidates are being funded? Is there a resource that's online somewhere where you can see exactly where the money is coming from? Yeah, so if you go to um, opensecrets.org, you can search for Congress members. Um, They break it down by industry, category, and um, company in terms of the top donors. And then if you want to go a little uh, more granular, then you go to follow the money, and then you can search for each of the candidates there. By alphabetical order or by descending order, they have a lot of information. But um, so you'll you'll but then um, based on how you look for things. Thank you, and I will put that in the show notes for anyone who's interested. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you because you did mention that um, experience that you had with the text blast and the email from uh, Jamie Raskin. Thinking back to the times when you ran, was there something, or really even, it doesn't even have to be about your campaign, just maybe sort of all points of your life, you know, as you were kind of moving closer towards what your life mission is, are there certain things that surprised you? I mean, I think it comes from a different variety. Just a few quick ones off the top of my head. I'm not Korean because I'm gay. Um, I, I felt like a lot of people were telling me that directly and hinting me to that. Um, number two, um, I was surprised that my opponent and current Congress member pulled up my 18-year-old voter registration card from freshman year of college 21 years ago, uh, where I registered as a Republican um, because I grew up Republican under a fundamentalist Christian pastor dad who hasn't accepted me for being gay. And, and that was years ago, two, over two decades ago. And yet, on the mailer, he said that I was an undercover Democrat that's Republican. And I'm like, what the heck? Um, and then number three, um, I guess just just kind of just amazed by the dirty play of politics. Um, again, I mean, another story. I, I was shocked when um, my friend and current city council member, um, Eunices Hernandez, called me and said, hey, one of Jimmy Gomez's volunteers just stopped by our door and said not to vote for you because you're Asian and because you're Korean and that we need a Latino representative because our district is majority Latino. 
and how she told the volunteer that that wasn't right. And I said, oh, okay, thank you for letting me know. Um, a news article comes out and um, Jimmy denies it, obviously, that he's never instructed any volunteers to say that. And then he inserts a statement from Representative Judy Chu, who says that David is playing political games six days before a general election, that Jimmy Gomez has always been a supporter of the Asian community and David is creating this. And I saw that. I was like, oh, my gosh, Judy, you don't even know the specifics right now. You're commenting or you just let him use your comments or what it, whatever it is. Oh, like this this game of politics is dirty. And so honestly, Rachel, it was it was because of those things that I was shocked by. It's like, ah, do I want to really subject myself to this? And like I got I had a lot of trauma to deal with after running that last cycle because current Congress member attacked me in so many different ways. But but I know that it's part of the game and um, I'll, I'll have to go through it again this cycle as well. But I have a great support system. I'm, I'm practicing mindfulness and, and, and I know that um, those are distractions at the end of the day and that um, that I know where my my worth and value are. And, and I know that our constituents and supporters know that, too. So, yeah, there's so much resilience in that to know that you went through all of that and so publicly as well. And you're just someone who is a regular person, doesn't have a political background that is really just trying to make change. And then all of a sudden you have these, you know, high ranking people, professional politicians kind of coming at you. That must have been such a trip, honestly. Exactly. Exactly. I, I still have the screenshot of um, Judy Chu's statement. So I'm like, I, I'm just thinking, wow, at least she, I guess she she knows who I am now. No, yeah, you're, you're right. on the radar. <laughs> Well, how can people support you this time around? Yeah, um, I think just really sharing our message, following us on threads, on, on X, on, on IG, <laughs> on Facebook, um, on TikTok. And um, if you want to sign up to volunteer, I think that's amazing. That would be great. We need all the help we can get in different areas, whether that be video ideas, research, um, etc., and so you can just join uh, davidkimforca.com. And then if you're able to um, make a monthly recurring donation of um, five, 10, 20, 34 dollars, whatever amount you're comfortable with, because um, it goes a long way um, at the end of the day. And so um, and then just maybe getting a few friends on board uh, to do any of those things. And so um, I think really just really getting the word out because it's not something that we can do alone. And we really noticed that as our campaign grew from 2020 to 2022, from 47% to 49, um, I think our message clearly is resonating as as our numbers just continue to grow. And and I feel like this is it. Uh, something feels different and, and uh, we'd love to have you on board. Is there anything that you want to leave the listener with? Any tip or piece of advice that you think could help someone as they go through maybe their own life transitions, um, their own life journey, whether it is maybe running for office and doing something um, in the public world, or it's maybe someone who is in that corporate job and kind of not feeling passionate about it and knowing that there's something more out there for them. I would I would just end with this. We search for all of the answers and and all, everything outside of us, but it I, I hate to end this with a very um, unable to really grasp a, a, a tangible thing. But and I hope it's not though. But it's it's really inside of us. And at the end of the day, we're we're looking for fulfillment and meaning and connection. And if that doesn't start with us first, we won't be able to find that out outside. I think what we do outside helps enhance and helps us connect to the inside. But if we really don't connect with the inside first, we won't really experience the kind of the, the deeper depth and, and meaning of life and whatnot. So so just know that you are so powerful, that you are truly love and light and peace inside. And, and being able to connect to that is something we'll be doing every day, every moment we wake up in life till, till the day that we're here. But um but just really, I think the last thing I want to say is just love yourself. I, I tell myself that too all the time because it's something that we have to really consciously rewire. Um, there's a great exercise and this might be taken the wrong way, I know. But I think it is helpful every now and then. And if you're able to do it every day, that's fine. But to stand in front of a mirror, time yourself for five minutes. You can put both hands on your heart and just say, I love you. And then say your name. Do that for five minutes straight. 
and see what happens. The first time I did that, a few years ago, I started bawling and crying and heaving and whatnot, but I just continued. And then I started laughing and and there's just our soul, our cells need to hear that. Uh, we need to remind ourselves of that, of how powerful we are, because I think it's it's the love, it's feeling loved is what gives us power. It's feeling heard, it's feeling recognized is what um, makes us alive and, and makes us more inclined and attracted to certain things and certain people. And And I think that really starts with us first, though. So um, do that exercise, remind yourselves that you're love and love yourself. And, and that's what I would leave with for everyone. Oh, that's a beautiful way to end this podcast. Thank you so much for spending the time. And I know that I gained a lot of insight and inspiration from this conversation. So I know that whoever's listening out there did as well. So thank you, David, for being here. Thank you so much, Rachel.